Well, good morning. Our passage today is Psalm 33. I want to encourage you to stand as we read God's Word. Psalm 33 is a psalm that is a natural extension of Psalm 32 that we looked at last week. In fact, at least 10 Hebrew manuscripts have these two psalms, 32 and 33, actually combined as a single psalm, and we will see why, I think, today. Let's read together. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good word, this song of the forgiven. And we, ourselves, we devote our hearts to you to worship today, to look upon your loveliness and your holiness and all the things that you are, Lord God. Give us our understanding, the understanding that we need today of of what we read, of what we hear. Help us to apply it even, as Dave said earlier, to our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we looked at Psalms 32 and 51, and we discovered several steps that believers go through with regard to acknowledging and confessing sin. First, we found that there is the understanding that we are sinful from birth. We're saved by the grace of God. But still, we are easily deceived and tempted by sinful patterns. Second, God's hand is heavy upon his people who hide sin. And so David described his bones as wasting away in Psalm 32, as his strength drying up as in the heat of summer. 
Third, in acknowledging and confessing sin, God forgives His people. Fourth, in response of forgiven people, have joy and the desire to proclaim that forgiveness to others. As we saw in Psalm 32 and in 51, let me instruct others in this good news, David says. Well, the last verse of Psalm 32 was this. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And our psalm this morning repeats those words in verse 1 when it says, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. And then the rest of Psalm 33 describes how we are to praise God. So you might see this psalm today in essence as a psalm about worship. It's a response to God's forgiveness. It is the song of the forgiven. We see at least six worship actions in today's psalm. Give thanks, verse 2. Sing to him, verse 3. Fear the Lord, verse 8. Wait for the Lord, verse 20. Trust in his holy name, verse 21. Hope in God, verse 22. And in between all of those actions are reasons given for why we should worship. And as we even mention the word worship, that, that term stirs up a whole lot of emotions amongst a diverse group of people. And not a little bit of controversy, right? Part of the problem is that if we start with this abstract concept of worship as if worship is an end in itself, we'll get off on the wrong foot all from the beginning. Because you don't just worship as if worship is singing or praying or Bible reading. You worship something. And the moment we realize that fact is the moment we realize the need that we have to stop focusing so much on the how of worship and more on the who of worship. And that's why so much of Psalm 33 is filled with the who of God, what he has done and his worthiness to be worshiped. But instead of prioritizing the who, over the how of worship, it seems that we are often more prone to focus, right, on how. We ask, what do the people want? And then someone suggests we do a survey to see what kind of music the congregation likes or how long the service should be or or whether we should have a rotation in the liturgy. And if that's where we start with worship, we are sure to miss the mark because worship begins with God. And our view of him determines the how of the worship we offer. There are a few different words for worship in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word shakach is used. It literally means to bow down before a king. And the Greek word for worship in the New Testament, proskuneo, means the same thing. For example, the men from the East in the Gospels say that they want to proskuneo or to bow down before the king of the Jews. They're claiming in saying that, that the child that was born, that Jesus in Bethlehem, was their ruler. And so if we understand that, it's no wonder that Herod is upset, right? And proskuneo, by the way, is the word that Satan uses in Matthew chapter 4 when he tells Jesus to fall down and worship in exchange 
for the kingdoms of the world. To bow down is an acknowledgement of position. And so I want to say at the beginning that true worship is not so much about the things that we do, even though there are six very active things in Psalm 33, praising and shouting and singing and so on, that we might do during worship. Again, instead of the how, the important focus is the who. And so worship is about our position before and posture before God. To worship is to bow down before the King of Kings. And Psalm 33 spends quite a bit of time establishing that God is king. Verses 4 through 19 describe how the Lord is upright and faithful and how he loves righteousness and justice and the earth is full of a steadfast love. It reminds us that he created the universe by speaking it into being and how his creative and sovereign power gathered the waters of, of the sea as a heap, it says. He is king indeed, and his counsel, verse 11, stands forever. His plans are established to all generations, and as king, he is certainly worthy to be worshipped. But if worship is about our position and our posture before him, in order to bow down, we have to be before him, right? And where is that? Well, Psalm 33 tells us that we can find the king in heaven. Verse 13 says he looks down from heaven. Verse 14 says that he sits enthroned. And as we read in verse 18, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. So the only way to be able to bow down before God's throne, which is Psalm 33 tells us, is in heaven is to be born again through the grace of God's Spirit, to be granted access to that throne. And I'm reminded of Romans 5, 1 through 2, which says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through Him, we have obtained access. There's the answer. That's, that's how we get before the throne. Access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So worship arises from the person who both understands his position before God and who through the grace of God's forgiveness, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, has been granted access to him. And when we talk about worship that way, instead of about how we should worship, we realize you can't fake true worship. You can't fake it. Because worship is not a set of words or actions. It's not attendance on Sunday morning or singing a hymn or reading words in the Bible or hearing a sermon. It's not giving something to the offering or participating in the Lord's Supper. Worship becomes those things, but it is first a position and a posture and an attitude before God. And because it is those things that arise out of the gratitude of God's grace and forgiveness... That's why we see those worship-filled activities in Psalm 33. Shouting for joy, right? Giving thanks, making melody, singing with loud shouts. Those are, the, those are the actions of a soul that is overwhelmed. Compare that with just going through the motions of disengaged fake worship. Is it any wonder that God 
finds that so distasteful in the Bible. For example, Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 29, 13 says, this people, they draw near to me with their mouth and their lips. They sing these great anthems and songs. And if I could continue to put that into modern words, maybe God would complain they're talking about me at the fellowship meal. They put things about me on their cars or even on billboards along highways. They sing music during the church services purporting to be about me, but they do not honor me. They draw near me with their lips, but they do not honor me with their hearts. They have removed their hearts from me. And in Mary's worship of God, found in Luke 1, we find that she says in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. And English can't do the Greek justice in that verse in, in Luke 1.46 because the word magnify, some of you have exalt, is the word megaluno. And all of you know about the word mega, right? Supersize, large, great. And the word luno refers to exalting something. So Mary, Mary is magnifying the Lord, but she is super magnifying the Lord. She is... Mega luno, mega magnifying. It's often referred to an object that starts like a seed of a tree and grows bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And that is, I mention that because that is what our worship is supposed to be like. If Mary and David and others are examples for us, and we see what God wants in Isaiah, we need to recognize our position before the King of Kings and recognize what he has done for us. And as a result, our, as our spirit contemplates this wonder of the grace and majesty and greatness of a God who condescended to us, as we comprehend last week, as we did last week, the great propensity that we have to continue to sin, to hide that sin, and appreciate that God doesn't just leave us like that, but motivates us to confess by putting his that heavy hand of God that Psalm 32 described upon us, and then he forgives us. As a result of all of that, there should be this spontaneous, exuberant joy that grows larger and larger and larger and larger, like that big tree. We have a corresponding shrinking of our own significance in the face of God's greatness. We find ourselves asking him, for help and thanking him for actually providing us what we need. It sounds like something, honestly, that leads to shouting and singing and praising that we find in Psalm 33. That's how Mary responds in Luke 1. David began to think about what that creator of the universe had done and how, as verse 16 in Psalm 33, in our passage, it says, it's not the king's strength. It's not the army. It's not the war horse. It's not all these things. He's insignificant by comparison, but he remembers God's steadfast love. And so he has to praise God. He has to shout for joy. And friends, we know even more than David, even more than Mary, when we think about what the incarnation represents, that God the Son willingly lay aside his glory and took on the form of a bondservant, that he would die upon a cross, bear the penalty of sin intended for us, how can it not be moving us to greater and greater praise and adoration 
than either of those two were able to manage. Truly, if, it is, if worship is about recognition of position and posture, if it is the result of a heart that comprehends what God has done, surely, right, we should be worshiping even more. But unfortunately, as I said, that's not usually our focus. We think of worship as something that is man-centered. There are many, for example, today that say that the purpose of worship is evangelism. And under that philosophy, a a church would then make worship palatable and comfortable for non-Christians so as not to offend. Others say that the purpose of worship is education, and so they fill the service with lectures and word studies and magnify the sermon and teaching times far out of proportion to anything else. Others think of worship as simply an emotional experience with long moving songs and repetitive choruses and so on. And all of these well-meaning definitions, they focus more on man than on God. And as a result, God gets the leftovers. We certainly aren't the first generation to make those mistakes. Israel did the same thing too. And through the prophet Malachi, God told Israel in Malachi 1.13, you bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and, and that's what you're bringing as your offering. That's what he says there. Shall I accept that from your hand? And then I like how God says sarcastically, present that to your governor. Will he accept that from your hand? In other words, if he would not accept it, then why should I accept it? And the prophet Amos, the, ter- the herdsman of Tekoa who was sent by God to both expose and denounce apostasy and hypocrisy in Israel, he speaks these words of God in Amos 5.21. He says, I hate, that's a strong word by the Lord, I hate, I despise your feasts, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me Your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Instead, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's what I want. I don't want the how. I want the who. I want justice and righteousness. I want your heart. The very feasts which God himself had given Israel explicit directions to observe become through the Israelites' hypocrisy, through their double dealing, through their hearts that are removed far from God, they become this stench in God's nostrils, says the scriptures. And last week we heard David say in Psalm 51.6, you delight in truth, where? In the inward being. Isaiah says the same thing in Isaiah 1.11. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. You, you hear the similarity, the, the constant theme? I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come before me, who has required you this trampling of my courts, do not bring vain offerings. Incense is an abomination. New moon and Sabbath and calling convocations, those are the things that he had commanded of them. But he says, now I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. 
And I just, I just put a few verses. <laughs> it goes on and on and on. And when we read these kinds of passages, it should make us seriously pause and evaluate our hearts and our own worship. How long has it been since our soul was engaged in worship? And how often instead is our worship, in quotes, more characterized by distraction and burdens and challenge, if you will, of those who are facilitating worship, whether it's me speaking from the word or somebody leading in music, the challenge to say, make me worship today. Come on. That's why I came. Make me worship. Give me something exciting to dwell upon. Give me something profound to meditate upon. Make me worship. That's not how it works. How long has it been since you were so overjoyed you could not contain the words? Was it your wedding? Was it the excitement of some celebration? I'll I'll keep mentioning spouse or family because that's where those moments often occur in our experience and memory, right? It's, It's those times, those earthly times, which are great times. They should inspire joy. But really God is saying, if you are meditating upon what I have done for you, what I have set before you in terms of a future hope, right now where you stand before my throne, this should be your attitude every time you think of me. Megaluno. Be still and know that I am God, says Psalm 46.10. Sometimes that's what we have to do to reset. Sometimes we have to go, you know what? That is true of me. I can't remember the last time that my soul was overwhelmed with joy. I can't remember the last time that my heart was free of the distractions of work and family and, and conflict and whatever I'm, I'm dealing with. And so, so God says in Psalm 46, 10, be still and know that I am God. Or verse 8 of today's passage, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants stand in awe of Him. Fear, awe, that doesn't enter worship vocabulary very often, does it? And it's not a paralyzing fright full of resentment of God's authority, but it's a proper reverence that leads to a broken heart and grief over sin. Like we saw last week in Psalm 51.17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart God does not despise. What does he hate? He hates fake worship. What does he love? He loves a broken heart, grieving over our sin. And where can a broken-hearted person go except to the one who offers grace and forgiveness? Psalm 42.1 says, As the deer panting for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O Lord. It's because we realize he really is the only source of true joy. The only strength for our weary hearts. Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Flesh, my heart, they fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
And it is God who turns that mourning into dancing, whom as Psalm 30, 11 declares, loosed my sackcloth, clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. And we see in those passages the actions, don't we, of Psalm 33. We see there, he has turned my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. And so my song is of praise. My mourning is turned into dancing. And that's why I think of Psalm 33 as a song of the forgiven, but maybe I should change that title to the shout of the forgiven. The shout of the forgiven. Because we could sing like this, you know, with, with barely heard voice and pursed lips, we could sing like that. But you can't shout like that. At least I don't think you can very very well. And, and so I come back to the observation I made at the beginning. What I don't find in the Psalms, in various passages of Scriptures, are debates over the, singing twice as many hymns as praise courses. Controversies over the use of instruments. Whether we say amen after the Lord's Supper. Whether we begin with silent prayer. Whether we stand when we read God's word or any number of things. Some good questions we should be asking instead are these. Is this specific element that we've put into or thought about for the worship service true to God's word? And does it lead me to acknowledge my position before a holy, sovereign, and almighty God? Does it express the contrition of my heart over sin? Does it facilitate me expressing the joy of my salvation in Christ? Does it feed and satisfy the longing of my heart to seek God? If it doesn't, then it should not be a part of our worship. And throughout the Old Testament, we find God's people's hearts reflected in their worship. The more people turn their hearts away from God, the more they begin to incorporate the gods of the nations and the practices of the nations and the cultural aspects of the nations into their worship. These people have been called by God in Exodus 19.6 to be a kingdom of priests, to be a holy nation, and eventually become so accustomed to their idols they don't even miss God when he leaves their presence. Isn't that sad? Long after the glory of God departs from Jerusalem as described in Ezekiel, despite the continued warnings of the prophets that God had left, that Babylon was coming, the people simply go on with the mechanics of their worship services, their fake worship, offerings at the temple, check, celebration of the Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, check, and the... The sad thing of it all is, as Ezekiel sees in this vision, is the glory of God picks up from the Holy of Holies and it moves to the threshold. And then it moves to the eastern gate and then it leaves. And they're still there. Offerings at the temple? Check. Celebrations of Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles? Check. And it gets bad enough that in Jeremiah 2.8, you know, God is saying this disturbing comment by God, the, the priest did not say, where is the Lord? 
Those who handle the law do not know me. The shepherds are transgressing against me. The prophets are prophesying by these false gods like Baal. They go after things that do not profit. And eventually, you know, in the book of Revelation, you hear Jesus saying, I'm standing outside the door knocking. What's really sad, like we talked about when we went through the series on Revelation, is that modern culture has turned that into the individual saying that God is, is knocking at their heart and inviting, you know, asking the person to invite him in. No, that is Jesus writing to the church saying, I'm outside your door. My presence is no longer among you. I am knocking at this door. You don't know it. The people think that they're worshiping, but God is not even there. Instead, through the prophets, God begins to call the leaders. He calls them rulers of Sodom. He goes on to say, as we saw in those passages, incense is an abomination to me. It gets so bad that he eventually says through Ezekiel, even if my people had Ezekiel, or Daniel, I'm sorry, and Noah, and Job, if they were in your nation, I would only save them, he says, and none of you. That's what he said. He tells them through Isaiah and Jeremiah, even though you make prayers, I'm not listening. So we must hear those words today. God is absolutely uncompromising in his requirement that his people worship him and not the process, not themselves. I think of how Jesus began his powerful teaching in the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Peter later says to the churches, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And God has not changed. Second Chronicles 7.13 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, will pray, will seek my face, will turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. If God has departed from us, if God has withdrawn His, his hearing, if He has despised our fake worship, what the solution is, as Jesus says in the Beatitudes, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. The, the answer is to treat it like it is the very bread and water of our life, to humble ourselves, the Second Chronicles says, and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways. Many people are talking and praying for revival today. They're praying for a strong and vibrant church that stands for something in the midst of a postmodern, post-Christian, increasingly pagan America. But we must realize that no revival in history and no strong church ever begins with a self-satisfied people. The only reason that we seek and worship God is because in humility we realize that he is our only portion and hope. Psalm 77, 2 says, In the day of trouble I sought the Lord, and my hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. That is, that is the posture. The pleading. The praying. The beseeching. The seeking. That's the posture. The position. Humble. Because of the recognition of our sin and our proclivity to sin. The answer, God dwelling with His people. The answer, God 
moving towards his people. C.S. Lewis described this seeking as an appetite for God. The lions may grow weak and hungry, says Psalm 34.10, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And so when you come to worship every week, in fact, I'll say every day, remember that you come to a throne. You come in humility. You remember that God has bought you. You're no longer your own. You are here for a purpose. And it may be that you have not been worshiping. Perhaps you rushed to get ready on Sunday morning or dreaded even the felt obligation to be at church in the first place. Perhaps came only because of expectations of family members. God desires your worship. But more than that, the fact that he is the holy, 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 almighty God who was and is and is to come demands your worship. And if you haven't been worshiping, let me just take a moment to encourage you. Remember that God created man for a, a relationship that would last eternally. It wasn't a short-term experiment. And the moment you are birthed into the family of God, your eternity with him begins, and God has an eternal commitment to you. He has made you a joint heir. He has made you a king and a priest of his kingdom. Everything that God does is the eternal consequences, and you have been fit into that plan such that he has planned and prepared things for you to do, specifically for you to do before you were ever born, before the foundation of the world. We worship the creator of those stars and galaxies that lie billions of light years from our little planet. I've been fascinated by the images coming from the James Webb telescope, deep space telescope that was launched at Christmas time, and now the images are coming in. And yet the farther that man goes in terms of looking out, the, and the deeper the universe becomes, it's still the same. There may be more and more galaxies further and further up, but God made them all and he's named them all. And when I contemplate those types of things, I realize that the busyness of life steals my fear. It steals my awe of God. I think of coming down last week from the mountains in Colorado and looking across the valleys below. I think of standing during a cross-country Ski trip in the midst of an alpine meadow. There were no tracks, no animal tracks, no human tracks, just this white sheet of unbroken snow. And I realize I easily lose wonder, but it's all around me. Even in the midst of ministry, preparing for God's word, I'll, I'll often step outside my office having been, been in a bit of a gloomy man cave there only to step into the sight of the blue sky with puffy clouds and a bit of a breeze and wonder comes back for a moment. And, or Wendy and I go out in the early cool mornings and sit around the fire and, and read and pray together. Or we go out with Hope and Caleb and sometimes together with an extended a family member sat and, and lay out in the grass and stare at the sky and watch for meteors. The Perseids are coming. We expect some of our family members to come out and do that like we often do each year. We can spend 20 minutes outside just gazing awestruck at the myriad stars which represent me, 
Bring some more wonder in there, right? Balls of fusion-powered heat, millions of times larger than our planet. I can't help but be amazed at those times. And to wonder and worship. Why is it Why is it that we can have the James Webb telescope and we can see a million times more than David could, and yet it's so hard for our worshiping heart to to replicate what we hear from David when he says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork day into day under speech and night into night reveals knowledge. See, I think David and the other psalmists seem to express a deeper fear and awe than I do, and they didn't even know about Christ. In Revelation 5.12, we read how those around the throne of the Lamb say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then John says, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and shouting and singing and praising. You hear that in heaven? I do. The highest praise, the loudest hallelujahs, the greatest crescendo of worship is reserved for what God did in redemption. It was the Lamb, the risen Christ, that they are worshiping, the one with scars in his hands, his side and brow. It's the, it's the Lamb they are falling down before because the God who did, in fact, fling all of those millions of galaxies into the space around us is the same God who came to earth 2,000 years ago, hung on a cross and died for you and me. And I like how the living creatures say, Amen. Justin Martyr, in his description of Christian worship in the middle of the second century, writes that the prayers of the church always concluded with this vigorous Amen. And the word that he uses to describe what they're doing when they, when they shout Amen is best translated as shouting in applause. And I imagine that same kind of shouting applause in heaven, thunderous around the throne of God. Take some time today to think through how you've been worshiping. And the final element in the attitude that we see in Psalm 33 by David is this attitude of hope. It's a future-oriented focus that requires an ongoing habitual attitude of the heart. It's not, worship is not about you getting excited, getting riled up. Okay, we're about to step into the sanctuary and I'm going to be excited for a moment. The reason why that never works, the reason why it's a built out of impulsivity is because Ultimately, what you're really saying is I'm earthly focused 99% of the time. I got to turn my mind away. Get, remember, I got to remember why I'm here. Got to get God focused. Got to get future focused for a moment. Okay, now I can be excited. Okay, got to go back. Right? Got to go back to work. Got to go back to family. Got to go back to all other things that 
put me back to the present earthly focus instead of living with our minds set on the future as we deal with the present, remembering the past. So evaluate your worship. Ask these questions. Has my worship started to edge towards duty? Has it become redundant and repetitive? Has it become forced? Remember the truth without emotion produces a dead orthodoxy in a church full of the so-called frozen chosen. These are artificial admirers. They're fake worshipers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces an empty frenzy and cultivates a shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. That's also fake worship. True worship comes from a people who are deeply emotional because they know themselves and they know their God. Many of us have not been worshiping. And it's my prayer that we will desire to be a people who are convicted by the things that we've talked about today. I don't want to offer empty sacrifice. Do you? I want to admire my living, wonderful God. Amen? Amen. No, no, no. (laughs) Remember Justin Martyr. Thunderous shout. Amen? Amen. Amen. There we go. Let's pray. Father God, I do thank you. And I truly want that boisterous and and loud shout of amen at the end to to one day for all of us represent the truth in our inward being. Not even just the duty of the moment of being called to be louder, but, but Lord, truly a thunderous amen that you have forgiven us, that you've blessed us with Christ, that you, the creator of all things, should condescend to be our Savior, that you continue to intercede on our behalf, that you fill us with your Spirit, that you give us your strength. Lord, that you have forgiven us, we, a a people who continue to sin, continue to love sin, despite the fact that you have crucified the old man upon the cross with Christ, yet we We sow to the flesh. How could we do that? Despite the fact that we come so often with fake worship, with minds and hearts that are distracted, with with souls that aren't overwhelmed with joy, but are, are filled with conflict. Lord, you are kind. You are long suffering. You do call us away from fake worship, but you do call us through your spirit to will and to do your good pleasure. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you that you love us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.